I am focused on delivering value to the advisor, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, we want to make money, but guess where the money comes from? Delivering value to the advisor. You earn your spot and you always bring value to the advisor, always first, right? If you need to go super skinny on a loan, you do it. You do what you need to do so that advisor knows there's no spot other than with you that they will ever be serviced as well, help their clients as well. It's just not going to be a thing they're ever going to find elsewhere. As soon as you earn that place, it's awesome. Because then you go to like an event and like I'm going out to Vegas for a planning event coming up. There's going to be a hundred advisors there. Probably I know 10 already that love us and know us in the place. But so they're all going to be talking about you. Yeah. They're all going to be like, these guys are the bomb. Like, this is what's up. So, you know, in our effort to be the single best resource for financial advisors, it's something that we think about all the time. And it's funny because you would think to yourself, like, oh, like real estate agents, they're the ones with the buyers. Yeah, sure. But guess what? Financial advisors have a lot of buyers too. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Ben Stucker. Ben is a mortgage broker out of Pennsylvania. Did over 400 mortgages last year, 424 to be exact. And the vast majority of his business comes from financial advisors or from clients that previously came from financial advisors that are now his ongoing clients. And I think what's interesting about this is that he's taken a completely different approach to growing his mortgage business. And he's doing a ton of purchases. You'd think it's just refis, not the case. Really enjoyed my conversation with Ben and glad that he was connected by a mutual friend to have him on the show. We really dive into some of the misconceptions of working with financial advisors, why he thinks that it's a fantastic niche. You have to tool your business specifically though to do it well. And to just talk about like what the relationships like with the clients, with the financial advisors, it's just a great episode. Like honestly, it's very inspiring. And if you're sitting there going, man, maybe I don't want to do the realtor thing, or maybe I want to build a different part of my business. I think you're going to pick up a lot of value from this conversation with Ben. Also in the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Ben McCabe. So today's two Bens from Bloom Finance about different sources of reverse mortgage business. And wouldn't you know, one of those sources is actually financial advisors. So these kind of two episodes tie together well. Before we jump into that, let me give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection platform designed specifically for Canadians. It's very easy for borrowers to use. And it's also very easy for brokers. And one of the cool things is as they're filling out the app, it's automatically figuring out what documents your client needs. When that application comes in, you can go and search Lender Spotlight, which gives you all the rates and guidelines from all the lenders, lets you know where to send it. And then finally, when you go to hit submit, it's pulling key data from the application, puts it in the lender notes in a really easy to read manner. Because your lender on the other side, all their systems are different. Finding the information is challenging. Make it easy for your lender. They're gonna give you more yeses. You can check them out at lendescom slash Finmo to get a free demo to check that out. And enjoy this conversation with Ben. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the mortgage business. Yeah, so I have been fortunate to be in this wonderful industry since 2002. My first job in the mortgage industry was as a wholesale account executive working for a very small wholesaler. Was in that world for a little while, two years with a small wholesaler, and then found my way to work with New Century, which is one of the largest wholesalers in the country. And excelled pretty quickly to one of the top few account executives in the nation there. Had a lot of exposure to big broker shops back in the mid you know, 2000s, heading into the subprime crisis, and then found my way to the retail side of the world. After the subprime bubble exploded, ended up working for one of my largest clients as their head of operations, in charge of branch recruitment, compliance, training, ended up also launching a reverse mortgage division there where I spent some time. 
And so how did you end up in mortgages? So most people in kindergarten don't say, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, I want to get into mortgages. Yeah. So how did you find this career? Yeah, that's good. So I graduated undergrad in 2000. I was working at Priceline.com. I built and sold a .com when I was in college. So I kept with the tech space at the time and went into- oh, okay, hold on. T, what kind of .com yeah. was it? Yeah, it was called SoDamnCheap.com. And it was Amazon before Amazon existed, really. And I'd so did you do well with it? or I mean, I was in college and I was making enough money to buy pizza and beer. So I guess. You're like, <laughs> you you're know? happy. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy. And That's it was cool. a new thing. So I had eight virtual stores online and they were all at sodamncheap.com. And I think mm -hmm. I still have the trademark, actually, if you look it up. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so I did that. And then I got a job at Priceline.com and ended up working high up in their airline operations department. 9-11 happened during that time. So when the CEO of the company comes to you and says, what do we do? That's a pretty you know, exciting slash stressful, a very turbulent time in the industry, right? Back then, we didn't have phones like we have now. So everybody was hunkered in the gym, seeing what was going on. We could see the smoke coming out of the building. And I was in charge of these millions of airline tickets and everything. So yeah, so I did that. So I got into the industry because I rolled out a massive cost savings product or sort of process for the company. And I ended up getting a 7% raise on my very low salary at the time. You know, and I had a bunch of options for stocks and all that stuff, but it was a dot com back then world. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a very small raise after I really busted my tail to do all this great stuff for the company. And I quit the next day. How much money do you think yeah. you made the company with that it project? Annual run rate of $7 million savings. And then they bumped your salary by 7%. Like, good job. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was making 42 grand and they gave me 7% raise because that was oh. the limit. Okay. Yeah, so I was then, expecting then to go. I mean, you go to 100K or something, a couple hundred K a year. And so then what led yeah. you to go down mortgages versus real estate well, was, or in, whatever? So I had a conversation with my dad, who's a super smart guy. And I said, hey, this corporate world sucks. Like I should have made a lot more money off of that because my innovation created this project. I did all this myself. I'm not getting rewarded. He said, you need to get into sales. And I said, okay. And I said, what should I sell? He goes, sell the biggest thing you possibly can. Like the money, you mean cost-wise. I said, oh, okay, like houses? He's like, no, sell the money people need for houses. So I was 22. I didn't know any. I'm like, all right, well, like, what's that? He's like, mortgages. I'm like, okay. Just so happens I had a friend that actually moved from Connecticut down to the Philly area, was working for that small wholesaler that I first worked for. And I said, you know, hey, Kara, how much are you making right now? She's like, oh, I'm making like 12 grand a month or something like that instead of like four. And I'm like, dude, I want that job. Like, get me an interview. She's like, all right. I drove down there. Had the interview, got hired on the drive back, packed my stuff up and start the next week. That was it. Wow. I was like done. And then you got so, into it. Okay. That's cool, man. Yeah. All right. So how long have you been doing mortgages like full-time? Because it seems like you did a few different things in the industry, but originating, I guess. How mm -hmm. long have you been doing that? Yeah. So we've owned Mortgage CS, Alec and I, for just under eight years right now. And uh, okay. before that, I was in technology for a short period of time, but I was, you know, mortgages for a little bit, break, got my graduate degree, went back into tech for a little while, and then got sucked back into the industry. Right. And then, yeah. so one of the unique things, we have some common connections that connected us, and they said you have a pretty cool, different model and approach to mortgages. And so mm -hmm. tell me about who your, you know, optimum clients are. And I'm curious about that, because it's not like most people I talk to, it's realtors, or up until recently, it was a lot of refi business, but that's kind of, mm -hmm. that's not looking so good right now. So tell me about what's worked well for you guys. Yeah, we've really focused on working within the financial advising community, right? Financial planners. And that isn't just like, we've done some messaging, but we're in deep with them, right? We're in the associations, we're playing meaningful roles in the associations on the boards, we're contributing to these efforts. It's a tough nut to crack to get into the financial advising community. But once you're in there, provided that you 
continue to perform at a level that's, you know, reliable and sufficient, you know, make given positive client outcomes, then you're going to keep earning business. And word does spread pretty quickly once you're on the inside. But the key is, how do you get there? Right? How do you, right. Get, the, okay. how do you get that inside? What, what do you so, think is the biggest? I've got another friend. He's in Canada, built a very large mortgage company with relationships with financial planning firms. What do you think is the biggest mistake that originators make when they say, hey, look, you know what, I'm going to go after financial planners. What kind of things do you see them doing that typically don't work? I think there's probably one assumption that people make that might be sort of undermining their success in that world. It's, you know, there's an assumption, I think, that financial advisors are knowledgeable on everything finance. Most don't know a whole lot about mortgages at all, right? To the point in some cases where it's scary how little they know. Right. They just don't know a lot about mortgages, nor should they. They're generalists, right? It's like you go to a uh-huh. physician to get checked out. If you have a problem with your bones or whatever, they're going to send you that doctor. Problem with your ears or your, you know, you go to a respiratory. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's different yeah. specialties, right? So I think that someone who's a financial advisor generally is a generalist. And, you know, to go into them and throw up jargon and how much information you know and how smart you are at mortgages and all this stuff doesn't really win you over with a financial advisor. They're very concerned about their client relationships, rightfully so, right? They have 50 households that they work with. So they really want trust there. So I think the biggest mistake is sort of running out there and expecting, hey, let me show them how much I know about mortgages because, you know, I think they're really more focused on the quality of the relationship and your ability to execute and not ruin what they've built with that client. So there's something that I think about, like I've had really good success in targeting realtors, converting realtors, but I really understand their pain points. And when you understand their pain points, you can solve them for them or get ahead of them. And then that creates a great you know, experience. And so what do you think are the biggest pain points that financial advisors have when it comes to the mortgage side you know, of the business? Yeah, I'm curious. About yeah. That. There's probably two that come to mind first. One, we just chatted with a new advisor this morning. So they have clients in multiple states, right? And as a small broker, generally, you don't have a license footprint that maps to those states. One of the things that we did as an entity is we intentionally grew our geography to match where our clients are. So we have 11 state licenses, and we've expanded into the states where our advising clients say, I need you in South Carolina. I need you in Florida. I need you in Colorado. I need you in California. So we say proactively, Tell us where you need to be. Now, if you're an advisor, you can imagine if you have clients, say, in 10 different states, right? Just over time, you're going to. Even if you focus in one area, they're going to move and they're going to have second homes. It's really frustrating. And to they're going to have family multiple. in other states. Yeah, right. Yeah. So do you want to have five different mortgage people? And you know what I mean? It's like annoying to have multiple different mortgage people. But if you can have one mortgage person, that's a consistent experience that you know will deliver time and time again, and they cover your geography, that's a huge win. So a pain point for an advisor is having to deal with disparate contacts, multiple different mortgage people in different states and things like that. Um, I might say another pain point for them is getting the information they need pre, during, and post mortgage, right? I'm going to refer a client to you because they're supposed to go do a 15-year fix. They're supposed to go do a 30-year fix. This is the financial strategy. This is what fits into their plan. If they refer that client to a you know, typical mortgage broker, that mortgage broker may have the best plan of, hey, I want to come back and I'll tell you all about it during the process, but we have it built into our process. Updating the advisor along the way, getting them updated figures, asking them if they want to have any check-ins with us and the client. After closing, we send them the closing documents. It's built into our process, literally hard-coded in there where we send those emails out. And it just makes for such a pleasant experience for an advisor because they're like, hey, I want the documents, I want updates, but I don't want to be involved, but I need to know what's going on with my client. 
So we have, you know, not too much, but just enough interaction with them throughout the process where they're like, this is great. I refer a client. I know exactly what's going on. And then it's done and the client's happy and off you go. Super simple. Right. And I saw on your guys' website, you have a concierge team. So what does that mean? And like, can you explain that to me? Well, Mortgage CS is the mortgage concierge service. So that, you know, makes, we just that call makes our, sense. Then. <laughs> yeah. So we just call ourselves the concierge team. And I mean, it's really just like, you know, probably at the most basic level, we have six folks in the company right now. Our team is amazing. We are so in sync as a company. It's ridiculous. Every day at one o'clock, our entire team gets together and we talk about every new approval on that day, every purchase that's closing in the next two to three weeks or sooner. And most of them are already clear to close at that point. So we don't talk about a whole lot of them, but like every single day we get together as a team at, we call it a standup at one o'clock and we talk about every single loan in our pipeline, which, you know, there goes between 20 to 45 files probably at any one moment in our pipeline. You know, right now we're running about 35 to 40, you know, knowing that settlements are about 30 to 45 days out in most cases. So we've got like a month or a month and a half of purchases lined up. But like I was just looking today and we have 26 purchases closing between now and September 7th. I think it was, you know, about one a day ish or so. And we're already having conversations about like, guys, listen, we got a holiday coming up. We got a bulk of files that are going to be closing in the next three weeks. We need to make sure that we're getting these things clear to close as soon as possible getting those docs out, getting everything way ahead of time, because that last week of push is going to get real messy if we're trying to force, you know, 15 files out the door in that week. So let's get them right. out as fast as we can, you know. Okay. A couple of questions. How long does this stand up meeting take? If you're going through 25, uh, 20 minutes, 25 files? 20 minutes. Think of it this way. It's really the processor that's assigned to the file, right? Our tech stack is so dope. We built our own Salesforce enterprise from scratch. So we have our own flows, our own proprietary setup. And basically it's like, here's all the files that are in stage X. And we just go bang, bang, bang. Anything needed on this? Any problem files, new approvals? Like 30 seconds of pop. Like, you know, key Okay, things. so you're just, let's look at this list of whatever stage it's at, go through that list next. And then is one yeah. person lead the whole thing or how do you do that? Yeah, so Melissa, our director of loan production is really like the head of processing on our team. So she leads that. And then it's a great time too, because when a file gets approved, we transfer all the knowledge from the front half of that file, right? Like conversations we've had, yeah. are they keeping their primary? Are they selling their primary? Do they own anything else? Is there a weird business situation, a side income or new job that's starting? Whatever that information is that we need to transfer to processing. So it's not like working in the dark. That makes processing right. so efficient and fast. So that happens during that call. I'd say 20 minutes, a half hour is probably a long-ish one. Sometimes we go a little longer. If there's how does she keep files. you guys on track? So how does she like, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a pretty good team, but how would you keep that from turning into an hour? You know? Well, and if it's, I think part of it is everybody's happy to come to it prepared, right? Because we don't want to spend an hour on that call. We don't want to use six hour of our company's time on that day, right? One hour per person. So there's incentive to basically get in there, knock it out and just get through what we got to get through. We will take things offline. Like, hey, Let's think up on that after the call, right? Because we got six people here. So let's be efficient and just hit these things. Yeah, so say, if it's hey, like, hey, this is right a bit more complex. If it's not like a one sentence thing, hey, da-da-da-da, okay, you know what, you guys, and does Melissa, like, she remind you or you guys just like, you know, how do you know to take it offline versus just continuing to, you know, what are you guys yeah, using? Yeah, well, I'd say we're just all good professionals. Did you develop this pattern over time? Okay, that's fine. I'm I'm just thinking for somebody who's trying to implement this and they're like, this is a great idea, but I got talkers on my team. Then, you know, just yeah. train them to be brief. And then if it's a I longer mean, conversation. 
it probably could start out in a way where it's fairly structured, which is, hey, when your loan is called on, if you're the processor, you're going to tell us when the lock's expiring. And we have categories like we have a category for we're still waiting on stuff from the client, right? From the borrower. We have a category that's we have everything we need from the borrower. We're waiting on title, homeowner's insurance and stuff like that. And then we have a clear to close. And so we have stages. So we know when we're talking about files in this shoot, in this list, that these are ones the clients still owe us stuff, right? So we know, hey, you know, what's up with the client? Why aren't they getting us? Oh, they're not closing until next month. And the bank statement doesn't come out for another two weeks. All right, cool. That's great. And Next. again, we're going to talk about on, yeah. yeah, and we're going to talk about the file again tomorrow. So hey, you know what? Let's talk about that one tomorrow in a little more detail. For now, let's just zip down this list or whatever. Because you yeah, so, you, some things you can push off because you just know, hey, that this one we can talk about later in the week. But they never yeah, you know, the file's closing. What do you think on. would happen to your business if you stopped doing that? I'm just curious if like tomorrow you said that's Guys, our, we're not doing this. What oh, do you think would it'd be horrible? There would be a significant amount of wasted time. And right. the client experience would be 75% of as good as it is right now. Right. I don't think people realize how some of this stuff that you don't even think about. I mean, yeah, you got the tech and you got the processes map, but without the people connecting and doing that kind of reset, that's really interesting. Okay, so what percentage of your business would you say right now is from financial advisors? Well, so direct referral from financial advisor, not like started that way, you know, three years ago and it's referral, 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 but like yeah. a financial advisor saying, I have a client. So like, I'd say probably a minimum 50%. But then the other 50% are people that you got into your pipeline, did a good job for it. They tell your friends. And is that what the other half comes from? What yeah. I, well, it's past. I mean, refer, we have a lot of real estate agents that send us business too. Right. So what's cool about getting, you know, sort of intros from a financial advisor is we got one on Saturday morning, you know, I'm sitting here working, I'm starting my continuing education just to get that over with. And I was have like 17 hours to do or something ridiculous because all the states. So I got a text at 830 from a financial advisor who lived relatively close. We did his loan three years ago. He says, hey, this client that you refied loves you guys. They just got a house under contract. They emailed me late last night. I'm going to send them your way to knock out that purchase. I said, great. So by Sunday at six o'clock, they had their app done, docs in. I docked it out, locked the rate, and they're ready to go. And they're like, right. you're the bomb. And they're closing on September 1st. So that client was from a financial advisor and a referral from themselves. They were going to work with us anyways, but the financial advisor was just facilitating it with us. So I'd say, I mean, at least 50% comes directly from financial advisors, like net new clients. But then we've got this, you know, at this point, over a thousand past clients from just the past few years that all know us and like us. And we keep in touch with them on a regular basis. Once quarterly messages going out via email, follow-ups, birthday emails that we write ourselves. It's not just sign right. up for a service and pay it. It's authentic, real reach out. Right, right. How important is rate to the financial advisor? So in the, you know, obviously good experience. Like I'm curious about, you know, as part of your value prop, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting. I think it's very important, probably in short, right? They are often held by their duty to do what's best for their client. So they need to know that you're priced aggressively, right? So if you're a broker and you're priced at 275 and you go, I mean, as soon as that financial advisor says, hey, you know, other mortgage person, check this out. What do you think? And that other mortgage person comes back and says, your clients are getting smoked by this guy, right? Or whatever with these mm -hmm. high fees, you're out. Right. So, right. you know, you choose. So, and that that's probably the other thing too, that makes it challenging. Like if you're going to decide that you're going to work with financial advisors, but your model is traditionally FHA first time buyers where you're making 2.75% or something, you can't take that same comp model at 275 and go into the financial advising world and expect to earn a bunch of business and start, you know, having loans falling out of trees in your lap. This is not going to happen. You know, you got to be designed for that. They're bigger loan sizes. They're super clean clients. If your process is fast and efficient, you will absolutely crush it. 
if you're priced aggressively. The service has to be on point. Everything kind of has to be. You, know, you kind of need to have all of it now. You can't just get away with one. So is there anything else? Yeah. You talked about communication, you know, pre, during and after being important about, you know, being able to serve their clients in multiple states. So they have one point of contact instead of having to deal with four different people. Is there anything else that you guys do that creates wow that you feel like for financial advisors? I'd say, I mean, so a financial advisor is going to refer a company, right? Or make an introduction and you have to look like a million bucks when that happens. So your website has to be money. Your online reviews have to be flawless. Your social, like, I can't tell you the number of clients get introduced to us and they're like, oh yeah, I looked you up on LinkedIn. Like they use that to say like, who are these guys, right? They go to LinkedIn, they Google our names. They look us up on, you know, we have 230, maybe just under perfect five-star reviews on Google you know, 20 perfect ones on Facebook, et cetera. So, but we're flawless everywhere, right? So that's super important for a financial advisor because if they're going to make a recommendation, it has to look like they're in with the right team. You know what I mean? I appreciate blind faith from a financial advisor client, but I also know that we have to be able to earn our place. Right, right. That makes sense. And that's part okay. of it. They're sending them to a nice restaurant. You're not a fast food joint. Basically, yeah, you're right. it's, you've got to yeah. create that entire thing. All right. So I was trying to get in the head of my, you know, I can get in the head of a realtor. I understand them. I know it's not a fun place sometimes and being in the head of a realtor, but if you're trying right. to get in the head of a financial advisor, what other kind of things keep them up at night or that they feel like, you know, if they're thinking about their business, I know where I am. So I'm based out of Canada. And one of the things the financial advisors tell me is like, if I send them to a lender that also does investments, because, you know, so we have multiple mm -hmm. lenders. So they're like, hey, wait a second. I don't want to be competing with my with this lender to get them a mortgage. So is there, are there other right. things like that that you think about? Or I'm just curious. Or maybe it's different because you're in the U.S. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily. If I had options for lenders, which I don't know that I have many, although I have some banks and stuff like that. But like, I would not send a financial advising client to like, if I had an access, for example, to like a Wells Fargo or PNC or the national bank. Yeah, we're going to be like, hey, bring your investments management. over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm not about to do that. But that's also an incentive for a financial advisor to know and understand and work with a mortgage broker, you know, or even, I mean, anyone that is not a bank that's a, hey, here's why it's better to work with me is you're not subjecting your clients to this unwanted pressure, right? Who knows? Most advisors, and I can think back to like three or four years ago before we were like bigger in the financial advising world, we would say things like, hey, how many times did mortgages come up? They'd be like, yeah, they come up, but you know, we just tell them to do whatever. But as soon as there's trust there, they want to be a quarterback. They want to be the resource for their clients, but they're oftentimes very timid about that, right? And, and I look at certain people's online social profiles and I'm like, okay, you're like a mortgage person, but you're doing like a silly dance on TikTok or you're making these like ridiculous videos and you're putting right. them on LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff. I'm like, if I'm a financial advisor and I go online and I look you up after you cold call me because you want to do mortgage business with me and I see you, you know, doing a silly dance with your coworkers on TikTok, am I going to think that you're the right type of client to work with my clients as a financial advisor? Maybe, right? Maybe that you're a kooky client. Maybe that's, that's going to be your funny. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's funny. It'll be perfect. They'll love it, right? Or whatever. But I'd say, generally speaking, there is a level of professionalism that needs to come with that, right? You got to be educated. You need to be able to write proper emails. You need to be sophisticated enough to be, you know, speak intelligently. You need to be well educated to really know the products too, right? Really know mm -hmm. IRA distributions and, you know, asset depletion guidelines and primary home, second home, and give them the information like, Hey, if you're going to buy an investment property, oh yeah, I'm going to put 20% down. Okay, these are the rates. You need to say, 
how about we do 25% down? It's such a better loan term for you. And since you have $15 million, you probably don't mind that. But just in case you do, wouldn't you be open to that? Because the rate would be here instead of here. So acting as their guide, as their... Mm-hmm. So we say, we want to be the financial advisor's mortgage advisor. That's what we want to be. Right. And then how do you coach a financial advisor to refer you? You touched on some of them like, well, go where they want. or So what kind of conversation if I'm a financial advisor and I got connected to you, what would you say to me so that I would be like, yeah, dude, I got to use you guys? Well, what's interesting is when you think about the value you can add to a financial advisor, it's not just, hey, you have a client that wants to buy a house, make an intro. I say, listen, next time you have a client case and you have a client that has a second home, a primary home, a line of credit, and you have a question about that, pass it to me. Send me the stuff, ask me the question. Let me get back to you and show you how we look at stuff. So there are ways to crawl before you walk with a financial advisor to earn that trust and earn that keep. And I think that that's really important to how call many that out. financial advisors that you work with right now, you started out with that, you think? Probably most of them. I mean, some right. of them so might you're, what like you're suggesting. What you're suggesting is basically, let me show you how I can help you. Or you're not saying, hey, I'm going to do this mortgage or do something with the client. You're just yeah. basically showing how a debt advisor, if you will, looks at the whole situation. They go, oh, wow. Okay, cool. And now it opens the door for referrals. That'd be correct. Yeah. Even like how many financial advisors, hey, I'm buying a house. I just got it under contract. This is the loan estimate I got. Anything you see on here that I should know about to the financial advisor. Financial advisor is like, dude, I don't know. It's like, oh, pass that to me. Let me look at it. By the way, like I just had one today, we could do the same exact rate for 4,000 less in fees compared to a large retail lender. So he said, hey, how does this look to you? I said, it looks fine, but I could lock the same rate in today for $4,000. I didn't say, so make an intro to the client. Just, hey, just so you know, there's a range of costs for a rate like this. You know, And for me, it's actually, it's a good spot to be in where I am focused on delivering value to the advisor, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we want to make money, but guess where the money comes from? Delivering value to the advisor. You earn your spot and you always bring value to the advisor, always first, right? If you need to go super skinny on a loan, you do it. You do what you need to do so that advisor knows there's no spot other than with you that they will ever be serviced as well, help their clients as well. It's just not going to be a thing they're ever going to find elsewhere. As soon as you earn that place, it's awesome. Because then you go to like an event and like I'm going out to Vegas for a planning event coming up. There's going to be a hundred advisors there. Probably I know 10 already that love us and know us in the place. But they're all going to be talking about you. Yeah. yeah. They're all going to be like, these guys are the bomb. Like, this is what's up. So, you know, in our effort to be the single best resource for financial advisors, it's something that we think about all the time. And it's funny because you would think to yourself, like, oh, like real estate agents, they're the ones with the buyers. Yeah, sure. But guess what? Financial advisors have a lot of buyers too. And financial advisors are used to talking about mortgages right now. Hey, what's up with the rates? That's like every conversation with a financial advisor and a client. You know, good thing we refied you two years ago. Are you moving anytime soon? So we we help the advisors ask those questions, right? And give them some information, things to think about. Do you yeah. think financial advisors are more loyal than realtors? For sure, 100%. Definitely. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so they're more no. loyal. And once you win their trust, the trust from the client is, I would suspect, is higher because if I got somebody holding all my money, tell me what to do, I just do what they tell me. Like my accountant says, do this, yeah. Scott. There's already this trust. I just do what he says. I'm like, yep, That's right. whatever you say, man. So I can imagine that the, transition from that person to you is like 
the great part is you can talk about all the stuff you're doing because not everybody can deliver the experience. It's that's right. If you can't deliver the experience. It, it doesn't matter. Don't even try. Don't even, don't try. even try. If yeah. you can't deliver an amazing experience, don't even go down this path because they'll shred you. Like so, honestly, if, uh, yeah. if you're like a loan officer in a branch of a retail lender, or if you're a loan officer under a broker and your comp is set at, you know, 1.25 and you know, your rates aren't super competitive. Like you will end up hitting roadblocks that are insurmountable because your right. rates will never be there and you'll lose that trust, right? You can't go out there. You need to have that extra piece of like, and I got your back hundred percent. I'm always going to hook up your clients and you got to prove it. Right. Right. Okay. I got a question for you. Do you ever get your financial advisors to introduce you to realtors and do realtors even use financial advisors? That would yeah. be a, you know, so I'm curious. Yeah. So that. here's something that's, there's actually something really cool. So imagine if most financial advising offices, they tend to be smallish, right? Two to yeah. four advisors, but some have like 10. The nice thing is once you're in with one of those advisors and you crush it, they have conversations in the office and you're getting the other advisor, the other advisor, the other advisor, and you're spreading in that office. So think of it as a hub and spoke model, right? Advisors mm -hmm. in the center, their clients are around. Now one advisor is introducing you to other hubs and they have their clients and they're the firm's clients now, right? And you're working with that company now. So there's been advisories that we've worked with for you know, three, four, five years. We've done 50, 60, 100, 150 loans for their clients, purchase refi in that firm mortgage CS is what you do, right? Mm -hmm. It's just what you do. And it's time and time again. And we'll tell them when we don't do stuff, right? And we've done things like, you know, people ask us about lines of credit. So we created a page, mortgagecs.com slash HELOC, H-E-L-O-C. It just has a bunch of lines of credit on it, direct links in. We don't make any money on it, but we have it. It's a great resource. Advisors ask us about it. We say, go here. And they're like, dude, that is so helpful. Thank you. Just a super quick shortcut link thing. And that's it. Right, right. So you guys don't do any HELOCs at all. That's not Correct. the product you guys use. Okay. Because that's something that's common in, at least in Canada, financial advisors tend to like HELOCs. Your financial advisors typically are not recommending HELOCs or you're just saying when they do, you just say, here's your options. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I'm curious about that. Do, they do recommend think? them. I mean, so most advisors take the stance that if you are a client, you have a portfolio of you know, stocks and bonds and cash and all this kind of stuff, right? Now in that portfolio, and I'm not a financial advisor, but this is what I've learned is if you have 50 grand in cash sitting in your portfolio, that's money that isn't in the market, right? It's not growing at 5% on average or 6% on average over 30 years or whatever the market grows at. Why wouldn't you get a line of credit for 50 grand, have access to 50 grand if you need it, then take the cash in your portfolio and put it where it's supposed to be making you money. Right. It's inefficient to have cash sitting in a portfolio when you could have it in whatever your normal investment strategy would be for yourself. Right. right. So and, have and the line with of inflation credit. right now. To, yeah. You know, you're gosh, losing you're, really, you're losing money. Yeah. 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 So yeah. best thing you could do is have access to the same cash in a line of credit. If you need it, pull the trigger, write the check out of your line of credit. But otherwise, don't have cash in an investment account. There's no reason for that. You know, again, not an mm -hmm. advisor. That's just what we see. And, and it falls into the category of, why react when you could act? Like, don't get ready to get ready. Get the line of credit, get it set up, have it sitting there and let your assets, you've already busted your butt to invest, make those things work for you. You know what I mean? Right. That's really right. it. That makes a lot of sense. And then, so if somebody's in, let's say they want to start working with more financial advisors, what would be your first step? So if you're like, hey, I kind of know some, but what would be your first step to do something like that? I would do a self-assessment of, truthfully, of your capabilities as an originator right? Like, can you actually deliver service that someone will be like, wow, right? I equate mortgages to plane flights. 
Like, you know, you take a flight. When was the last time you got off a flight and high fived someone and was like, that was awesome. Like you don't do that on an airplane <laughs> flight. Right. Like best no. case scenario, you get on the plane. You're like, thank you for getting me here. Not even I'm alive. Awesome. Yeah. I made it. I'm alive. Maybe you fall asleep for an hour or two on a three hour flight. And you're like, that actually felt really short. That was awesome. Like you're mm-hmm. surprised that it went easy. Right. Or it goes so bad. They lose your bags, you get bumped or whatever happens. So airplane flights and mortgages either go terrible or you're pleasantly surprised. So can you give a self-assessment of yourself and say, I have the right team, I have the right communication, I have the right control, I have the right rates, I have the right mindset. My business is set up to work with financial advisors. And if you can't really go all in in that direction, then you can still try, but I don't know that you're going to build a book of business of financial advisors if you don't check all those boxes, right? You're going to be right. fighting an uphill. It's like going upstream, right? The whole time. Right. So. You know, one of the things that I tell people all the time is that like the narrower you focus, the bigger you can grow. Like it's counterintuitive. I see people sometimes they got, I do first mortgages, second mortgages, commercial, residential, da, 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 and they go, listen, right. it's like, it's even worse. I specialize in I specialize like, nah, in, yeah. no, no, you don't specialize in any of that stuff. And it's like saying, I specialize in plumbing, electrical, drywall, painting. It's <laughs> like, no. You know, you get somebody who's really good at one of those things and you can make a great business by just focusing. But you're right. You have to retool your business, retool your thinking around it and your processes to really serve that client, that financial advisor, and you can build a great business. But too many people like stretch because you touched on the fact that you'd worked in reverse mortgages and some other things that you could probably do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. We could. But so as a guy who I sometimes struggle with ADD, how do you resist the urge? Maybe this is not a problem for you. How do you resist the urge to not try to spread yourself into other things? You know, this is you coaching me right now, by the way, because this is just my own personal. Yeah. Challenge. So, but a higher level, I mean, think about like during the refi boom, do you know the temptation to go start a JV with a title company? Hey, you can make an extra 20, 30 grand a month, right? Start a JV. How about we open an insurance company and we start hawking homeowners insurance and car insurance when everyone comes to us. So not just like other products, like construction loans and this and that and all this kind oh, of right, stuff. Oh, right. Yeah, just other, right? other parts of the vertical. Yeah. You're talking about other vertical. You're like, dude, I could do all this stuff. But what I really do is I sit there and I say to myself, like, listen, you know, I could start to do a lot of construction loans. I get questions about them, but is that my highest and best use, right? What amount of time will that take from my day? And what could mm-hmm. that time be best used for? And for me, like helping someone get, I've never done a construction loan. So like the estimates and the check-ins and the client experience, it's just not something I've done. And I'm not willing to test a client on that. And I know there's people out there that, you know, self-proclaim that they're specialists in construction loans and stuff like that. That's great, right? People say to me, what's your niche? I say consistently good experiences and incredible interest rates. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, and they're like, well, what kind of niche is that? I'm like, it's actually not an easy niche. That's a hard niche. To always be really aggressive on interest rate and have a flawless process is a really hard thing to do consistently, right? Do it once, mm-hmm. no problem. Everyone gets a clear to close in five days once in a while and they're like high-fiving, putting on social media everywhere. But how do you get consistently clear to close a week and a half before closing all the time? So what, what is your average for clear to close? Gosh, I would be shocked if it's above 20 days. Right. This is the last question. This has been a lot of fun, actually. I've taken tons of notes on this conversation. So because I have a mortgage company in Canada and I'm like, okay, like, I think there's some things. Like yeah. this. What do you do with you said, the HELOCs or one things you guys don't do? What do you do with other types of things that get referred to you that you don't do? So like you touched on construction or maybe it's non-QM. So like, I don't know if you do that, but what's some things you don't do? And I'm curious about that. Yeah. So most typical thing we don't do would be like a state we're not yet licensed in. Right. That would be like, I want to go to do a loan in New York. I'm like, oh, sorry, we're not there yet. 
like, oh, well, what I do you heard they're, they're hard to get licensed in. They're like one of the hardest, like. Yeah, we, yeah. we actually started the process and my business partner, Alec, thank God I have him. He's amazing. Best business partner on the planet for sure. We have a separation of duties, right? We do a lot of the stuff the same and we're both good at a lot of different things, but we sort of just by nature of the business division of labor, he heads up most of the organization around our licensing and compliance and any money laundering training and all that kind of stuff. So thank God that he's here. He's so good at that stuff. But one of the things I understand is if you have the word mortgage or the word rate in your name, you have to get it like cleared by the state first. And so our company name is actually rates for us. So we had to get that cleared and we're pending. And then our mm -hmm. DBA is mortgage CS. So we had to get that cleared. So there's just everything. But I'd say, you know, going back to your original question for lines of credit, we tell them to go to their local bank. There's not a big difference between, you know, bank A, bank B, bank C, you know, depending on what you're using the line of credit for. If it's construction loans, we tend to tell them just to find a place in our construction, look for the big sign in front that says financed by blah, blah, blah bank, and just call that bank because they're doing construction lending in that area, you know, yeah. or just Google it, right? I mean, I always find if they fund the developer, so like, I don't know, maybe where you are, but we are, there's a lot of large developments where the developer mm -hmm. will own a project, and then you can get it through them because they want to actually get rid of those properties and stuff. I have a question for you. This is more technical, but what's the longest term rate holds you guys could do? So like, you know, like new construction, is that an area that you guys have been able to do? Because that's mm -hmm. a struggle for us. Like in our area, we're like, we can't touch it. But yeah, new construction, guys... most lenders allow for 180 day lock with new construction. So six months. We have with some lenders, the ability to extend at no cost to the client up to about 20 days total. And then the lender can obviously add on a few days here and there. So we're looking at like 210 day locks without the client paying anything. And then if they pay, you know, 50 basis points, they can get another 30 days or so. So we're looking at, I mean, 250 days plus or minus we can do from a lock perspective, which is pretty good, pretty good lock time, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. So that's new construction. If, if it's not new construction, it's 90 days. And then we can add that 20 or 30 days on for free and right. no cost. So still get four months. Right. Yeah. Okay. We can do 120 days. So this is really good. So where can people find you online if they're like, just want to check you out or whatever? Yeah. I mean, best place is just go to mortgage CS or go LinkedIn and just search up Ben Stucker. TikTok, you'll be on there dancing, you know, no, uh, partying it up no. in Vegas with the financial advisors. But if a bunch of financial advisors party different than realtors do, I could be I, wrong on this, but I'll tell you what, when I first got involved with the Financial Planning Association here in Philly, I think I just lucked out because the year that I started getting involved, there was a group of 25 to 35 year old advisors that we're sort of just, we kind of formed a cohort of sorts. Now I'm in my mid forties, but I aspire to be a 35 year old endlessly. Um, <laughs> and I, I would say, you know, we just got along really well socially, that group of 10 to 15 people. And it made every event of the financial planning association feel like you were coming home from college and seeing your high school friends again. You know what I right. mean? Like that's what it felt like whenever there's a happy hour, it's like catching up. haven't seen you in a couple of months. What's going on with that? And and it's cool too. Like I've been fortunate, you know, some of the people I've met in the financial planning association, like this year, we're planning the fifth annual real men wear pink golf event in Philly for the American right. cancer society. So like, we're doing some really cool stuff and other people that wanted to do other events and I'm staying involved and, you know, doing what I can to help, help what other people care about, you know, and what I care about too. So, right. you know, trying to be a good citizen, you know? Well, dude, this has been awesome. A lot of fun chat with you. I've taken tons of notes. Hopefully you guys listening to this are getting as much value from it as I did and congrats on your success. And I think Thanks, man. you got it nailed, man. You just narrow focus, you know, aim small, grow big, aim big and nothing happens. And so 
congrats and i'm glad that we got connected for that mutual friend okay take care brother yeah thanks scott talk to you man All right. Hopefully you picked up some nuggets from my conversation with Ben and his business has built on financial advisors. I know that I found it to be very enlightening and it got my wheels definitely turning. In this next segment, I talked to Ben McCabe from Bloom Finance about reverse mortgages and where you can actually find sources of reverse mortgages that you may not have thought about. He talks about financial advisors, but he has a couple others that often people overlook. Have a listen. Hey, Ben, welcome back to Ask Experts. Thanks, Scott. So, hey, today I think we are talking, we're going to talk about the biggest areas of opportunity for reverse mortgages in the kind of current market environment. So give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's evident to everybody in the market right now that the reverse mortgage market is growing like crazy, even as, you know, the traditional mortgage market might be slowing down a bit right now, the reverse mortgage market is just powering ahead. This is really driven by sort of demographic factors and trends that aren't impact month-to-month volatility in the economy, right? Just are an aging population and high home prices. But our market is still in Canada so underpenetrated for reverse mortgages relative to other markets in the world, like the UK, the US. Like in the UK, the market is five times as penetrated on a population-adjusted basis as it is in Why Canada. Why do you think that is? What is it that you think is different? Are people in the UK, do they understand the product better? Is the product yeah, so- different? Like no, the product is, is virtually the same. There's a couple of little nuances. They have a lifetime fixed rate product there, which is a cool product. Uh, in Canada, our products rate reset like traditional mortgages. The biggest thing is product education and just yeah, general awareness of the product and the fact that the providers you know, in that market have done such an amazing job over the years of positioning reverse mortgages as really a mainstream retirement planning tool, as opposed to kind of how it's been positioned historically in Canada, which is maybe more of a solution to an acute financial need for somebody in retirement. Right. And it's like, hey, we have a plan to move to this. And traditionally in Canada anyway, the reverse mortgage is sort of like, oh, go there if you don't have another option kind of thing. Yeah, it's the need to have client as opposed to the client in the UK, just anybody who has a disproportionate amount of their money, you know, tied up in their home is looking at the solution. I think that's where the Canadian market's headed. And that's where obviously what we're focused on, on unlocking. Right. Okay, so what is that first area of opportunity that you see? So really, I mean, it's just kind of relates to that, right? It's just, it's building this type of product into clients' financial plans and retirement plans, right? And I think that the key to that is really unlocking the financial planning and wealth management kind of channel as a distribution channel for reverse mortgages. So like that channel, that financial advisor, financial planner is a really, really big channel for distribution in the US and the UK, but in Canada, it's still relatively untapped, but it shouldn't be right. Cause in Canada, look like the average home price in Canada is what around $800,000. The average senior has less than $180,000 of retirement savings. Okay. 79% of Canadian seniors say they're financially insecure. They don't have enough resources to sustain their quality of life, their standard of living through their full retirement based on the resources they have, but they're not taking into account home equity in that equation, right? So for any type of financial planner, financial advisor, they should be thinking about this as part of a retirement plan for their clients. As a mortgage broker, you know, you can be part of that education process, right? Find financial planners, financial advisors that you know, and spend time talking to them about reverse mortgages and how that could be powerful for their client. And obviously, you know, you're in full position to help the client when time comes. What's interesting is that, so the previous interview I had my guest on that we were just talking about financial planners as a source of business. And I think the reverse mortgage product is a great, you know, fit for that client if you educate them, but you got to like, they don't really understand it. One thing he said to me, which is interesting is that they actually know a lot less about mortgages than you think they do. He says they're like generalists. So they're basically, they have, you know, a bit of knowledge about a lot of things, but they're not specific. And so you as a mortgage advisor can come in and be really helpful for them. 
and they often don't understand our products as yeah, well. Anywhere be, as be their point person on mortgages. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so in finance planners, it makes a lot of sense. What would be the next area that you think would be opportunities? Yeah, so the next area is, is kind of trying to position reverse mortgages close to the point of need for our customers, right? And like, what is the point of need? Sometimes it's refinancing an existing mortgage, right? So brokers are right, you know, in the position to do that. But I think another really big area of need is like high cost products and services for seniors, right? And one of the things I really think about here is home care, right? Home care is 78% of the Canadians say they want to age in place in their current home for as long as possible, but only 26% think they'll have the resources to do so. Right. So home equity can obviously be a tool. It's really the only tool that could be available to people uh, to be able to you know, afford that type of thing. Right. So I think that home care providers could actually be a really interesting source of origination for this product. Right. Because they have customers coming to them all the time saying, hey, I'm looking for your service. And then they realize, and how do I pay for it? How do I pay for it? Right. And so if the home care providers could say, hey, well, here's an option. If you don't have the cash to pay for it, which most people don't, I'm talking, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month. Perhaps your home could be the source, you know, of capital for that. And here's my mortgage broker partner who can help you figure that out. Right. Yeah. My grandma, she was like, I think 95 or 96 when she finally couldn't stay at home. She had stairs and everything. And all she wanted to do is go back home. Every time that, you know, my uncle's go visit her, it's like, what do you want? When am I going home? So I agree with you. She was in that home for pretty much forever. But there is something about just having the comfort of, you know, consistency. And so, and if you have the equity, why not, man? Like, I think it's your money, you know, and uh, so that's a good idea. So Financial planners, providers of high cost services, home care providers, other areas do you think are opportunities for reverse mortgages? Number one opportunity, number one kind of key to unlock the true potential of this market is education. It's educating you know, everybody involved in the process about reverse mortgages, about the power of the solution. And you know, one of the things that needs to be remedied right now is people's misconceptions around reverse mortgages, right? You know, People are always asking us questions like, will the equity in my home degrade over time? You know, the answer to that is in most cases, no, right? And we have tools at our website where you can illustrate to your clients how that's not the case, you know, if there's any type of, you know, home price appreciation over time, right? People are worried about getting kicked out of their home, you know, needing to be educated that you can't be kicked out of your home. You can stay in your home as long as you want in your timeline, as long as you pay your property taxes and home insurance. It's really these misconceptions that need to be sort of assuaged and fixed over time. That overall education process that obviously we're very focused on and a lot of our mortgage broker partners are focused on as well. That is the key to really unlocking the potential of this market. Right. That's awesome. And again, back to if you look at what's happening in the economy, we've got people that are on fixed incomes. You've got inflation increasing. You've got cost of living, just everything, fuel, food. And so being able to eliminate a mortgage payment or a line of credit that's you know stressing you out and or potentially unlock equity to do some whatever that looks like is pretty compelling. And then if you look at the demographics, you go back to, have you ever read the book, The Pig and the Python, where it shows like the baby boom generations, like the pig and it's going through the Python? Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. so this is the idea, right? So you've got this huge demographic shift. So I always think of these things, maybe that's not the best metaphor. I always think of things like a wave and the wave is whatever is the kind of the trend. And if you can get your surfboard on the wave, you can be in a good position. And so the surfboard right now for somebody is to have access to product like this, understand it, know how to educate your clients. I think given the demographic, there's a demographic wave that you can ride and you can serve people, help them and everybody wins. So I think it's fantastic. So people can find you at bloomfin.ca. Ben and his team are amazing. I know you guys are growing like crazy, disrupting the whole reverse mortgage market with a great experience. So check them out. Ben, always great chatting with you, man. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to the show today. Me talking to the two Bens today. This episode is brought to you by the letter B. I'm just kidding. In any case, thanks for listening. A couple quick things. First, 
If you're a uh, new mortgage broker and you're trying to figure out how do I get my business going, I recommend you go check out rookie2rockstar.ca. It's a webinar that we put together that shows you exactly how we help new mortgage brokers go from rookie to rockstar faster than anywhere else, building a referral-based business. You can check that out. And if you're just trying to you know, increase your knowledge, your learning, go to I Love Mortgage Brokering, set up a free power search account. You can literally keyword search all of our past episodes, type in the word, for instance, financial advisor, insurance broker, insurance rep. You can find every episode, every mention from the last 400 episodes, jump right to those moments, pull out all the gold and build a kick-ass business working with financial advisors and insurance brokers. It's 100% free. So you want to check that out, go do that. Thanks again for listening. And thanks again to Finmo for helping us bring the show to you. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.